Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll know we started a brand new series uh, on the Book of Romans. So today's part two, and we're going to look today at uh, Man's Heart of Darkness uh, from the second half of, of chapter one. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Romans 1, 18 to 25. Uh, and the Word of God says this. Uh, Rav Shul says this. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over. He gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Blessed be Him. Amen. In this passage, we have Paul summarizing what's wrong with the human heart. What we're going to look at today are four things that Paul says you can find in every single human heart. Uh, if you look at every heart, you'll find these four things. We'll put them on the overhead. Uh, number one, you'll find the knowledge of God. Number two, you'll find a veritable factory of idols, a manufacturing plant for idols. Number three, the hardening of our humanity. But also, number four, finally, the capacity for endless praise. So the knowledge of God, uh, the factory of idols, the hardening of our humanity, and the capacity for endless praise. So number one, the knowledge of God. First, Paul says that innately... Within every human heart is the knowledge of God. Uh, and he says what's so awful, uh, what God is so, so angry at, is that we suppress this. We suppress this truth about the knowledge of God that we have. So look at Romans 1.18. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. Why? Because they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why? Since what, we, what may be known about God is plain to them. Now, listen, think about this. You can't suppress something unless you've got it, right? So, so, what, so what do we have? We have the truth. And what is the truth? Well, the truth is, Paul says, that deep down in our hearts, we know there's a God. And we know about his eternal power and his divine attributes. So look at Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been created, what's been made, so that we are without excuse. In other words, regardless of what we tell ourselves or what we claim to know, uh, what we claim, we know deep down there is a creator uh, on whom we are utterly dependent and to whom we are completely accountable. We know that deep down, this truth, but we suppress it. We repress it. We hold it down. We hold it back. And that means that Paul's saying two things about human beings. First of all, that everyone understands a great deal about truth. There's a lot of truth that everyone innately knows about God, about life, about reality. But we're also told we hold down that truth. Uh, we, we repress it. Why? 
Here's why. Look at verse 21, Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says our hearts are ungrateful and defiant and twisted, curved in upon themselves. We refuse to acknowledge God or to give him glory or to the thanks due his name. You know what plagiarism is? You know, technically it's intellectual property theft. But do you know why it's so severely punished? Because it's not giving thanks. It's falsely claiming to be self-sufficient, claiming, oh, you came up with this. Uh, Not acknowledging dependence. Not acknowledging that you didn't come up with it. You got it from from over there. Uh, You're dependent on this other person. Plagiarism is a refusal to give thanks. And therefore, it's a claim to self-sufficiency when that self-sufficiency is not true. And cosmic plagiarism, if you will, cosmic ingratitude, cosmic unthankfulness, is living in the illusion that we are self-sufficient, that we call the shots, that we decide what's right, what's wrong, that we decide how to live. And we hate the idea that we are utterly and completely dependent and that therefore we should be thankful to God for everything. Why why do we hate that so much? Because then we lose control. Because then we'd have to be, we'd be obligated. Because then we couldn't live any way we want. And we hate that. We hate having to acknowledge any dependence or restraint or obligation. This sin in our hearts, this this rebellion, this pride, this self-centeredness, it causes us to desperately want to keep in control, keep control of our own lives and not yield to the Lord, uh, to live defiantly the way we want to live. And therefore, we cannot acknowledge the magnitude, the size, the greatness of God and how much we owe him how dependent we are on him, how accountable we are to him, how much we should be living in thankfulness to him. We don't want that because that means we lose control. Therefore, we suppress the knowledge of God. Uh, uh, We may claim to believe in, in a general concept of God, but we don't believe in the true God, the personal God of the Bible. Because that means submitting to him and losing control and no longer being able to run our lives the way we want to. Here's, here's, an, ex- here's an example. Years ago, if you may, some of you who are old enough may remember this, but years ago, there was a famous TV talk show host, uh, David Frost, uh, who, who had the David Frost show. And, and one, in one of his shows, he interviewed this world-famous atheist, uh, Madeline Marie O'Hare, who was the one who actually got prayer kicked out of the public schools back in the 1960s. And David Frost, although he's not himself very religious, he was arguing with her about this. And, he, and she, of course, said she's an atheist, a militant atheist, and she said there is no God. And he said, well, I think it's okay to believe in a God. And they went back and forth, back and forth, and finally David Frost uh, said, I'll settle this, and he did a very modern thing. He decided to solve it in a very modern way, by taking a vote. (laughs) So he took a straw poll of the studio audience. He said, how many of you out there believe in God? And almost everybody raised their hand. And he turned to Madeline Marie O'Hare, and he said, see, I win. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is this. The truth is Madeline Marie O'Hare missed a great opportunity to push back and to probe and to really test this proposition and to challenge the audience's level of belief. Because what she should have done, if she was thinking quickly, what she should have done is say, excuse me, but can I take my own poll? What she should have done is turn to the audience and say, how many of you believe in the God of the Bible? How many of you believe in the God who comes down on Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and earthquake and deep darkness? How many of you believe in a God who's a consuming fire? Who says, no one can look upon my glory and live. 
How many of you believe in the God who condemns premarital sex and homosexuality and even looking upon it at a woman in lust? How many of you believe in the God who says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin? How many of you believe in a God that demands blood sacrifice? How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? That God who sends people to hell if they do not repent and trust in Yeshua as the Messiah. How many of you believe in that God? And most likely, very few people would have raised their hands. And then she could have turned to David Frost and said, See, I win. (laughs) And here's why she would have won if she had asked those questions. Romans 1 says that the real God... Not the liberal God, not the conservative God, but the real God, because the liberal God is a God of love, uh, the spirit of love, uh, of love in the universe. You can basically live any way you want to live. The conservative God is, is the harsh, stern God of moral absolutes, and only if you obey those absolutes perfectly and try really, really hard and are really, really good, and you're one of the very few righteous people, then you can please God, and he'll take you to heaven. But don't you see... Both of these gods, both the conservative God and the liberal God, these are the kinds of gods who leave you in control. A God who's just a God of love, you can live any way you want. You're in control. A God who's a demanding God, that only if you fully obey him will he take you to heaven. Why? Because you're one of the righteous ones. That's a God who ultimately owes you for this great moral record you've given him. Either way, you remain in control. But the real God, the God of the Bible, the God who's a consuming fire, the God who you can't look upon and live, the God who says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the God who says I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me, the God you can only relate to on the basis of absolute grace, and therefore you owe him everything, that God, that's the God you'd be utterly thankful to. Uh, you either be utterly thankful to him or you won't want a relationship with him at all. That God is the one Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1. The real God. You know, in the old movie called The Bible, uh, there's a scene on Mount Moriah where Abraham is about to sacrifice Yitzhak uh, his son, and Yitzhak looks up to Abraham and says, is there nothing he cannot ask of thee? And Abraham says, no, nothing. Nobody believes in that God unless by the power of the Holy Spirit your heart is regenerated. The Holy Spirit has to come in and intervene and reveal the Lord to you. Because Paul says here in Romans 1 that on our own, left to our own devices, we will not believe in him. Why? Because we suppress the truth about him. You may not believe in God at all today, uh, which is often an excuse for people who want to live any way they want to live. Or most of you, uh, you believe in God. Most people say they do. But you may not believe in the real God, the God of the Bible, uh, because then you would lose control. And you don't want to do that. And that's why Paul says here, Romans one twenty one, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts became darkened. But in contrast, would give him the significance and the honor and the thanks and the praise and the worship that he deserves. We're to give him endless thanks. But most people refuse to do this because then we lose control. So that's point number one. We all have the knowledge of God, but we suppress it. And you know why? And you know what this means uh, for, for we who are believers, for we who are Yeshua followers? We have to realize that what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said is true for everybody. Uh, in, in some ways. He'll put this on the overhead. He says, uh, you cannot divide the world... Well, no, yeah, thank you. You cannot divide the world into good and bad people. Why? Because the line between good and evil runs down the center of every human heart. 
Every human being is good and evil. And we as believers, we understand that. Because even when you're born again and you have a new self, you also still have the old self as well. And we feel that. We, we experience that. But Paul says that's true of everybody. Everyone is created in the image of God, and everyone has an innate sense of the truth, despite how much we may try to suppress it. Everyone, therefore, has this ambivalent relationship to the truth. And therefore, the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart, of every movie, of every book, of every work of art. Because every human heart knows a lot about the truth, but every human being is struggling and and, and resists the truth. And therefore, every work of art, every cultural product, every great work of literature, uh, everything has has a remarkable mixture uh, of both good and evil. Uh, There's a constant dialogue going on between truth and falsehood in every human endeavor. And therefore, we, we as believers, we shouldn't say, I will only... Uh, read Christian or Messianic books and only go to believing lawyers and doctors and dentists and accountants and and everything else and everyone else is evil. No, because then we end up with the same thought process as the famous uh, court composer Salieri. Remember him from the movie Amadeus? He says, I'm moral. I go to church. I pray. Why is this licentious person, Mozart, getting so many of God's gifts? Why such beauty coming into the world through him? I don't understand it. I'm the good one. He's the bad one. What's going on here? Well, James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Every act of wisdom and justice and beauty, no matter who does it, it's a gift of God. And God bestows these gifts on all people, his common grace. So we need to be able to appreciate God's gifts from whatever source they come, whether a believer or a non-believer. But at some time, we must realize that in all of our hearts, there's this deep resistance to the truth. So point number one, we all have a knowledge of God, no matter how much we try to suppress it and ignore it and deny it. Point number two, in every human heart, we manufacture idols. Our hearts are a virtual idol factory. And this is perhaps the central thing that Paul is getting across here in this passage. First, Paul shows us the inevitability of idolatry. Because he says this in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God uh, for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Notice they worshiped and served created things rather than God the creator. In essence, there's only two options for all of us. You worship and you serve the creator, or you worship and serve created things. But there's no possibility of not worshiping, of not serving someone or something. Now, plenty of people today, of course, claim that they don't worship or serve anyone or anything. But Paul says that's impossible. Why? Because if you don't worship and serve the true God, and no one does apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, then you have to be worshiping something else. How does this work? Kind of like this. We human beings, I'm going to call telic creatures. We are all telic creatures. Telic from the word telos, uh, meaning purpose. Human beings have got to live for something. Something has to capture your imagination. Something has to capture the highest allegiance of your heart. Something has to be the resting place of your deepest happiness, of your deepest hopes. Every human being has to to look at something deep in their heart, whether consciously or not, and say, if I have that, then my life is worthwhile. Then I'll have meaning in life. Then my life will be worth living. Then I'll know that I'm somebody, if I have that. And whatever that is, whatever your hopes are, your deepest hopes and desires, uh, your your highest allegiance, whatever your your ultimate concern is, that's what you worship. Because that's what worship is. And therefore, the inevitability of idolatry. Because none of us in our natural state worship the true God. We, we, We believe in God, 
We believe in a, a kind of God who leaves us in control. And then what we actually center our lives on, though, what we actually give our functional trust to, our, our functional worship to, that's something else. And these something else's are, are myriad. Money, career, sex, beauty, fame, popularity, power, human relationships, political causes, uh, artistic or athletic achievement, human approval, comfort, security, personal peace, control. That's the inevitability of idolatry. We all have this within us. And the second thing Paul shows us is the incredible range of our idols. Today, of course, if we talk about idolatry, people say, do you mean worshiping statues? No, not at all. Idolatry is much deeper and much broader than that. By the way, I remember years ago, uh, Elizabeth and I were at a, and our girls were at a Chinese restaurant. This was many, many years ago. And in the front of the Chinese restaurant was a little Buddha statue with candles and food uh, at the bottom of it. And there was some little kid behind us in the line yelled out, Look, Mommy, there's idols in Dallas. <laughs> if only he knew. <laughs> because Paul shows that anything can be an idol. Let me give you three quick examples. Romans 1.24. Paul links idolatry here in our passage to sexual lust. And it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful, sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Paul says you can make an idol out of sexual lust and desire and, and romance. And then a second example, in Colossians 3, Paul calls greed idolatry. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul says materialism is idolatry. Yeshua himself, likewise, says you cannot serve both God and money. The love of money is idolatry. Uh, And then in Galatians 4, Paul's talking to to Messianic Jews, uh, like us. And these are Messianic Jews who are sliding back into the heresy that they must observe the law in order to be saved, and the Gentiles must become Jews in order to be saved. And Paul says to them, if you revert back into that moralistic, legalistic religion based on works righteousness uh, and earning and, and meriting your salvation through your own efforts, you are going into idolatry. Now, maybe you've heard the idea that money can be an idol. Maybe you've heard the idea that sex can be an idol. But have you heard that religion can be an idol? I know plenty of people, probably you do too, sadly, uh, who've made Judaism and Jewish practices uh, into an idol. Some even go off into Kabbalistic occult speculations. Uh, Some even believe that, uh, and and, uh, believe it or not, even preach that all Gentile believers in Yeshua must convert to Judaism, uh, as if God is not the guide of the nations. So religion can be an idol. Because outward religious works feed our pride, and they puff up our ego, and they fuel our self-righteousness. So even the law of God itself can be an idol. If we focus and obsess on the outward external observances and practices and rituals, because it's easy to major in the minors, because anyone can be scrupulous in the outward rules, like Shabbat and Kashrut, but still have an evil, prideful, lustful, vengeful, jealous, greedy, hate-filled heart. And God is after the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And until you see this, you do not have a biblical understanding of what idolatry is. Because idolatry is looking, at, looking to something to give you the kind of hope, the kind of value, the kind of worth, the kind of ultimate love and acceptance that only God himself can give you. If you love anything more than God, if you rest your security on anything other than the sovereignty of God, if your imagination is captured by anything more than the greatness and the majesty of God, if your value is rooted in anything other than the grace and the love of God, if you love anything more than God, and most people do, 
then you're looking to a created thing to give you what only God can give you. And therefore, you set up an idol. And there's all kinds of idols, both near and far idols. So, for example, we all know that money can be an idol. But why? Why is money an idol? Some people make a lot of money, but but you'd have no idea about it because they don't spend it on themselves. Uh, They don't drive fancy cars or wear flashy clothes or have expensive jewelry. Uh, And you know why? Money for them is something they sock away. Uh, And they can't give it away. You know why? Because money is their way of keeping control of their lives and their environment. It's their way of saying, I've got this money so I can handle anything that comes. I'm secure. I have control over my world. Instead of prayer, instead of God, it's money. That person doesn't spend their money. They just have to know that it's there. They don't tithe, they don't give, they don't donate. Why? Because it's an idolatry of control. I have control of my life. And money is what gives me that control. Other people take their money and they spend it, a lot of it, on themselves. They live in beautiful places, and they look beautiful, and they hang out with beautiful people. Why? Because for them, money is their way of getting on the inner ring, on the inside of the the beautiful people, right? Money is their way of getting human approval. If I have this approval, then I know who I am. Then I feel significant and secure. So money is an easy-to-see idol, but underneath it are deeper idols, the idols beneath the idols. Anything can be an idol, because our fallen hearts are idol-manufacturing factories. And everyone has them. If you are a Yeshua follower, you have broken the back of your idols when you've committed your life to Yeshua, So now you are a new creation in the Messiah, Yeshua, but you still have your vestiges of your old self as well, still hanging on. The old self is still beholden to idols. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we're completely beholden to idols. So everybody struggles on on some level with idols. Do you know what your idols are? Do you know what your near idols and your far idols are? Paul says, if you don't, then you don't know your own heart. You don't know your own heart, and you're living in denial. So number one, I'm going to put this on the overhead, uh, the heart has an innate knowledge of God. Number two, our heart is manufacturing idols. Next slide. Uh, And number three, the third thing going on in every human heart which I'm going to call the hardening of our humanity. One of the themes throughout the Bible is that idolatry leads to a hardening of our hearts, uh, to, to a heart of stone, uh, to dehumanization. Over and over again in the scriptures, we're told that if you worship idols, which are things, rather than the living person of God, if you worship things rather than the person of God, then instead of a person, you will become a thing. You will become hard. You'll become as blind as an idol. You become as deaf as an idol. You become less and less of a human being, less and less personal, more and more hardened in your heart, uh, uh, more blind. So look, for example, at Psalm 135, uh, verse 35. And the psalmist says this, Psalm 135, verse 35. You put this on the overhead, please. Gotta get that back up. So this is the Psalm 135. Uh, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouth. Those who made them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul is basically working this principle out. Because when he says we're all guilty of idolatry, and then he goes on to say, our wills, our, our minds, and our emotions are slowly being eroded and taken over, and we're becoming less and less human and less and less personal all the time. Paul says, whatever you worship, you serve, right? Romans one twenty five. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. The word served 
means you are a slave to it. Now, you may not realize you have blind spots, that you're in denial, uh, and you're futile in your thinking, but consider this. Whatever is the most important thing in your life, whatever is the thing where, because of that, you're happy, because of that, you have meaning in your life, you, that's the thing you have to have. You have to have that. You have to. And if you don't have that, your life is over. Your hope is gone. Uh, your very identity falls apart. And if that's not God himself, then that is an idol. Uh, and there's no freedom concerning that idol. There's no choosing concerning it. You know, humans can choose. But you're more like an animal if you like, if you behold into idols. You're operating on instinct. Uh, you're more like a robot that does this following you, your computer programming. Because you've got to have it. You must have it. You're driven. And so your will is beholden to those idols. And then secondly, Paul says your mind is beholden. Look at Romans one twenty one. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their mind, their thinking, became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice how a second consequence of idolatry and the hardening of humanity is that your thinking becomes futile. Uh, and then down in verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They believed the lie. Idolatry is a form of spiritual addiction. And all addicts are in denial. So if you say, I don't see any idols in my life, you are an addict because you're in denial. <laughs> you say, okay, I admit that you know, this, this, and this, uh, these are pretty, thing, pretty important things to me in my life. Oh, you have no idea how important they are to you. Because you don't want to know or to see. Alcoholics always say, I can control it. That's what they say. They're in denial. Because their lives are out of control. They're enslaved to that addiction. But they can't see it. And there's something in your life that if you look at, is just like that. And you can't see it because your idols blind you. They weave a delusional field, a field of denial around you, so you always minimize their grip on you. In other words, you have eyes, but you cannot see. And the longer you worship the idol, the more you have eyes that do not see. Just like the idols, just like them. And then thirdly, Paul says, your emotions are beholden to your idols as well. Paul says, their hearts were darkened. Not only is your will beholden, not only is your mind futile uh, and deluded, but in verse 21, uh, Paul also says, their foolish hearts were darkened. And then in Romans one twenty-four, he says, uh, put this in the overhead, one twenty. God says, therefore, God gave them over to the, the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, this word sinful desires, it shows up every place in the New Testament that the word idolatry shows up. It's the Greek word epithumia, which actually means an epi-desire, epithumia, like kind of an epicenter. Uh, it has the implication, yes, of sinful desire or lust, but it actually means a super-desire, uh, an inordinate desire. Idolatry creates super-inordinate desires, these epi-desires, over-the-top, uncontrollable desires. That's the actual meaning of the word. You're not only driven to have it, but if anything gets in your way, there's not just worry, but there's paralyzing anxiety. There's debilitating guilt. There's paralyzing, debilitating bitterness and anger. And therefore, you become more and more like an animal, driven by primal instinct, uh, or a robot following your programming, and less and less like a human being. So how does this work out in our lives, uh, these addictions to various idols that, that take over our mind and our will and our emotions? Here's what one commentator says. It's kind of lengthy, but we'll put it on the overhead. He says, anxiety is idolatry mapped into the future. Anxiety becomes pathologically intensified to the degree that I've idolized finite things. So suppose my heart values, uh, my functional meaning in life is, is politics, either Democratic or Republican Party. Then when my party loses, I don't just experience glum disappointment, 
But I'm shaken to the depths. I can't accept it. I demonize the other side. I call them deplorable names. I say he's not my president. Uh, I threaten to leave the country. I'm so furious. I defriend everyone who's voted on the other side. I've made an idol out of politics. And my anxiety is simply my idolatry mapped onto the future. In contrast, guilt, first we had anxiety, now we have guilt. Guilt is idolatry mapped onto the past. Guilt becomes pathologically intensified to the extent of idolized finite things. So suppose I value a happy family, and therefore my, my performance as a parent is valuable above everything else. Then if my daughter goes wrong or has great problems, I'm not just sorrowful or grieved, but I am stricken with neurotic guilt. I cannot forgive myself. I hate myself. I may even become suicidal. And then lastly, anger is, and bitterness is idolatry mapped onto the present. Anger becomes pathologically intensified when someone or something stands between me and that which is my ultimate value. So suppose my, my career is my measure of my worth. And someone at work is harming my career or opposing me or getting in my way. I won't just be angry, but I'll be so deeply bitter and capable of doing things to this person that actually I, I may end up blowing up my career more thoroughly than that person ever could. Do you see what's going on? Or what, uh, or what if, if, if you make your, what about, what about this, for example? What if you make your morality your idol? What if you believe that because you are a good person, uh, you've been very good, you've been moral, uh, you've followed all the rules, you've kept your nose clean, you've avoided all the obvious sins, therefore God owes me a very good life. Well, then when difficulties come, sorrow, your sorrow becomes pathologically intensified into bitterness against God and against life itself. And it, po- it, po- it poisons your ability to enjoy life ever again. Why? Because you deserve better than this. And God's being unfair. He's being unjust. Don't you see idolatry dehumanizes you in all these different ways? If you worship a thing instead of worshiping the person of God, you will become less and less a person and more and more a thing. That's point number three. Finally, number four. How will we escape? How will we escape this endless cycle and addiction of denial and suppression and idolatry and dehumanization? The text, this text contains so much. It's like an arrow in a bow uh, aimed at your heart, ready to shoot. So how are we going to escape? Here's what we have to do. And the text here in, in chapter 1 just really hints at it because Paul is going to flesh this out in the rest of the book of Romans. But here's a hint here at the end of our passage, where it says in verse 25, they worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. And then we'll put that on the overhead. The answer to our problem lies within our capacity, and the overhead, please, our capacity to seek the Lord and to worship and to praise him. The first thing you've got to do you want to escape the idols of your heart uh, and the hardening that comes with it, is you've, yeah, you've got to, I'm, I'm going to call, you've got to not waste your sorrows. You've got to make good use of your disappointments. So it says in Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires, literally to the strongest desires of their hearts. You know, ironically, think about this, ironically, the worst thing God can do to you and the most just form of punishment is actually to give you over to the strongest desires of your heart, to let your wishes become true. That's actually, ironically, the worst thing for you and the most fair judgment. Uh, I love this next quote. Oscar Wilde famously said, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. (laughs) Think about it. The worst thing for us uh, is if God, God gives you over to your sinful desires, if he answers those sinful prayers. You know, the rest of Romans 1 goes on to describe how when we choose to worship created things uh, and not God, 
God gives us over to to shameful lusts, to depraved minds. Oscar Wilde was right. When we get the things our sinful hearts most want, it's the worst possible thing for us. Because our hearts are disordered uh, and twisted and bent in upon themselves. Our hearts are filled with idolatrous desires, uh, epi-desires, over-desires. So the worst thing God can do to you is to give you what you want, to give you over. The Greek word here actually means to surrender to your enemies, give you over to your lusts, to the temptations of your flesh, to the demonic forces enticing you away from God. Your strongest enemies are these sinful over-desires within your heart, the idolatrous desires in your heart. And when you harden your heart, and you ignore your conscience, and you turn, you turn your back on the Holy Spirit's conviction, God eventually just gives you over. He gives you over to your own fallen nature because you stubbornly refuse to humble yourself and repent. Richard Baxter was a 17th century Puritan. He wrote about what happens when you set your heart on money and you, and you actually get it. And of course, money is a common idol, so that's a good example. And he describes how worldly success is actually a disaster for you spiritually if you've, because you've made it into an idol. He says, if you set your heart on money and you actually make it, several things can happen. One is that you mistake your wealth and your savvy and your skills and your smarts with, your, with character, with, with good character. So you're savvy and you're smart and you're successful. And you want to believe it's because of your good character. So you mistake wealth and savviness with character. And then the rest of your life, you make terrible decisions and choices in your relationships because you, you mistake wealth and savvy for character. And it's not true. He says you also become very proud because wealthy people tend to believe they're smart about everything, about every area of life. And they convince themselves, I'm an expert on everything. And everybody else sees it. Everybody else laughs behind their back. But nobody can say anything because they have the power, which means it's impossible to tell them the truth. So the worst thing that can happen, he writes, is for you to set your heart on money and then get it. And that's true for anything that you make into an idol. When you have idols in your life, the best thing that can happen to you, according to Oscar Wilde, is for God not to answer your prayers. Because only when your desires aren't met will you see that your anger and anxiety and guilt, that all these things you're feeling are pathological. It's not caused just by your circumstances. It's caused by your over-trusting in these things. Because you're looking to things to give you what only Yeshua himself can give you. And it's only in the, ironically, interestingly, it's only in the bad times that you really see your idols. It's only then, when your idols are threatened to be taken away from you, that they're exposed for what they are. So, number one, overhead, you've got to make good use of your troubles. And number two, you've got to learn to do what the angels do, which is endlessly praise. Only when your heart, or the only way to get your heart to stop worshiping the wrong things is to begin worshiping the right things. Who, who endlessly praises God? The angels. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets spoke of the suffering of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. They spoke of those things which have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, into which things the angels long, even the angels long to look. Peter says the angels long to look at the gospel. They long to look at Yeshua dying for you and me. They long to look at the glory and the beauty and the wisdom of it. They can't get enough of it. You know what the word long to look is? It's the word epithumia. The same word that elsewhere has translated as lust. The angels, in a sense, lust after the gospel. What does that mean? It means this. The deepest passion of the heart of the angels is satisfied by looking at the love and the beauty and the wisdom and the glory of Yeshua, reveling in it, rejoicing in it, singing praises to Yeshua. And the gospel wasn't even for them. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Yeshua was for you and me. 
when the deepest passions of your heart are satisfied by praising and adoring Yeshua, then all your other passions are put in their rightful place. And now you can uh, look at, at, approve, at things like approval and romance and money and comfort and achievement and all these things that you, that you wish you had. Uh, and you can now say to them, I can live without you because I have Yeshua. And if I can't live without you, I won't be able to live with you spiritually. And therefore, uh, you, all you things, you no longer control me. You don't control me. You can't push me around. You can't inflict upon me anxiety and guilt and anger. You can resist making these desires of your heart into idols if, like the angels, you learn to praise the Lord at all times and at all circumstances. If you learn to look at the gospel and be so moved by Yeshua's love for you that you love him with all your heart in return, and then note this word in Romans one twenty four, where it says God gave them over uh, uh, to our sinful desires. That same word is used in other places in positive ways. So, for example, in Romans 8, Paul says God the Father gave Yeshua over to die for us. And in Ephesians 5, it says that Yeshua gave himself over to die for us. Same word. When you see Yeshua giving himself over to his enemies to die for us, out of love for us, to pay for our sins, nothing else will then be able to take over the functional control of your heart. If you see him giving himself over to you, and you embrace Yeshua and what he's done for you, then you will, then you will not give up and give yourself over to your lusts and to your idols. Learn to sing the praises of the one who died for you. And then you can live in victory and you can defeat the idols in your life. So look up at time and exalt his glory. This is where it all starts and it all ends. Yeshua must be the center of your affections and your love and your longing. Yeshua must be the center of your desires and your thinking and your heart. He must be the center of your worship. So much there's no room for idols in your life. Romans 1, Romans 1 says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to their lusts. God gave them over to, to a depraved mind. Don't miss this. Uh, and note that especially the sexual desires and thinking and behavior represented by this, they're not just a reason for the judgment of God, but it's the evidence of the judgment of God. When you see sexual indulgence as a picture of God giving us over to ourselves in our fallenness. And this should cause the fear of the Lord to rise up in our hearts. This should frighten us with holy fear. This should cause every one of us to fall on our face and to cry out, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We want you to be restored, Lord, to the rightful place in our life. Want you, Yeshua, to be restored to your rightful place in our congregation. We want you, Yeshua, to be restored to your rightful place in America. Want you, Yeshua, to be restored to your rightful place in all the nations. Because you are the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. As the King of glory, as the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord strong and mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Lord, we fall down at our faces before you in repentance. We don't want to be given over to ourselves. We don't want to be given over to our sinful desires. No, we want you. We want you, Yeshua. We need you. And Skyam, we need to plead like this for ourselves for our congregation, for our nation, for our people Israel. We need to pray like this. So it's time look up and exalt his glory. For your redemption draweth nigh. Are you ready? Prepare your hearts. Prepare your lives. God, forgive us of our sin. Heal our land. 
Restore and save your people, Israel. Help us to exalt your glory. Help us to partner with you to win souls and to proclaim your gospel throughout North Texas and throughout the world to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Lord, help us to preach your gospel and live your gospel and proclaim your gospel. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we thank you today. We thank you for being the one and only God who, if we have you, you will satisfy us to the bottom. You will satisfy our deepest needs and deepest desires and longings and aspirations. Thank you, Lord. For, for, thank you for being our Savior and our Lord, Yeshua. That even when we fail you, you forgive us. And you cleanse us and you restore us. If we live for our career, our career can fail us. Our career can't die for our sins. Yeshua, help us to rest in the beauty of what you and you alone have done for us. The glorious gospel of your death and resurrection, into which even the angels long to look. So teach us, Lord, how to praise you endlessly for your grace and your mercy and your atonement and your forgiveness and your love. For you inhabit the praises of your people. And as we praise and worship you with sincerity and contrition and exaltation and truth, you will heal our hearts. And you promise to draw us close to you. So, Lord Yeshua, remove our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh that long to run to you, that long for you, that ache for you, that cling to you, that are made over more and more into your image. Help us to die to our idols, no longer be driven by guilt and fear and anxiety and anger, but rather to abide in your perfect shalom. So, Lord Yeshua, we turn now from our sin, and we turn from ourselves, and we turn from our idols, and we turn to you, and we embrace you, and we ask you to fill us today with your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.